0: Okay, you can be turning to 1st Peter chapter 4 in your Bibles this morning. If you hope you've got one, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some on the back table where you got your announcement list. Love for you to grab one of those. If you have a need for one at home, you can take it home with you. Once you get a Bible, turn to 1st Peter chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7. But let's just jump in and read verses 4 through I'm sorry, 7 through 11, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me again? Lord, we come to you again in prayer, because prayer is important. End of all things is at hand, therefore we pray. And Lord, we need to pray because we don't have the answers to the problems of this life. Many of us try, most all of us do, to do these things in our own power. Overcome obstacles, difficulties, problems, whether it's in our the workplace, in our families, in our own personal life and heart. Lord, we do everything we can sometimes except come to you in prayer. And so we want to learn from our mistakes, and we want to come to you in prayer. And so we pray to you now, and we're we're needing your help to understand and to continue on in the Christian life. And so we pray your blessing on us as we talk more about this, as we think through some of these things. And then, Lord, that you would help us to apply them as we go out into the world pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So that little phrase, the end of all things is a hand, it is kind of ominous if you just read it by itself. But he begins this section of chapter 4, Peter does, with I think what is kind of a call back to what he's been getting at for some time in his letter. I think this still has to do with the idea of suffering. And he alludes to the fact that suffering is temporary. He's talking about the end of all things. He's been talking about suffering. There's something greater, though, than any suffering, than anything the end of all things might have in in our minds. There's something greater than, look at the end of verse 11, it's the glory of God. The glory of God is bigger than any kind of suffering we endure. I know in the moment of our suffering, that may not bring a ton of comfort, and yet I hope that more and more we walk with Christ, the more and more comfort we do draw from that idea, from that truth. So, Peter has just said, it's true. When your life changes, this was a text from the beginning of chapter 4. He said, when your life changes, when you don't do the same things that you used to do before Christ, your friends see it, and Peter says, they're surprised. They're surprised by it, that they don't join with you in all of the, the junk that you used to do. Sometimes they even make fun of you. He says, they malign you for these things. But Christian, take comfort in the truth of what Peter is saying here. That doesn't last forever. It doesn't. Peter doesn't ignore these things, but I think he does want his readers to understand that these things, in reality, are just a really short season in your own overall life and just a blink in the scope of all of eternity. The ridicule you may endure for standing for your faith now hurts, but it is just a blip on the radar compared to all of eternity. Not even a speck, not even a grain of sand on the seashore compared to all of eternity. The end of all things is at hand, he says. There have been a lot of attempts at understanding exactly what Peter means here when he says the end of all things is at hand. You can... You can look up a lot of different things. Some things are helpful. Some things are not very helpful. But Peter's not the only person in the Bible, in history, to use this kind of a language. These are in your notes. I just want to kind of reference a few others. The Apostle John in 1 John 2.18 tells Christians that it is the last hour. Similar phrase, the end of all things, the last hour. Galatians 4, verse 4 Paul talks about Jesus' earthly coming again. He talks about it in the fullness of time. Hebrews 9.26 says that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Paul draws a similar line that Peter does between being sober-minded or self-controlled, the end of all things, and prayer. Those are three themes. Flip in your Bible, if you would, over to Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four, verse five and six. Paul says something very similar. Philippians chapter four, verses five and six say this. Let your reasonableness, sober-mindedness, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Do you see those three things that are the same in Peter and Paul's writings? Sober-minded, reasonableness, the Lord is at hand, and because of this, what does he say? Don't be anxious about anything, but instead do what? Pray. Pray. James, flip over to James chapter 5, have you get your Bible work out this morning. James chapter 5 covers even more similar ground, verses 7 through 11 there. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. And merciful. Notice some of the similarities. If you've got your finger still in 1 Peter 4, you can kind of flip back and forth, but I just want to point them out really quickly. Similarities between what James says and what Peter has said. James said, be patient. Establish your hearts. Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. James says that the coming of the Lord is at hand. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. James says, the judge is standing at the door. A couple of weeks ago, we saw in First Peter 3 and 4 that God is ready to judge as if he's standing at the door. James says he mentions Job talking about prophets, those who were steadfast, and Peter mentioned Noah preaching in the spirit of Christ to the people while he was building the ark. And James mentions the Lord who's compassionate and merciful, and Peter Talks about the judge who is ready, but that he is not judged yet. He's patient. He's kind. So does, does this mean that what James says, the coming of the Lord and Peter's the end of all things are the same time frame? Is that what he's, he's saying? Well, maybe. But go back to 1 Peter 4 and look at verse 7 again. Peter follows the phrase with the end of all things is at hand with therefore, so here's the reason why he just said that phrase. Therefore, because the day, the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So, appears to me that Peter had a specific purpose in mind when he starts talking about the end of all things. What's the purpose? Well, for the Christian, the purpose is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Unfortunately... When we see people become obsessed with finding out what the end of all things is referring to, oftentimes they're not very self-controlled or sober-minded. More often than not, they're brash, assumptive, dismissive, judgmental. Jesus' own parables in Matthew 25 about the the wise and the foolish bridesmaids uh, carried the same message I think that Peter is, is bringing out here. You don't know when the bridegroom is coming. So be ready. Have your lamps filled with oil because you don't know the time or the day. So be ready. Be prepared. Be looking. While you're waiting, though, however long that is, no one knows, while you're waiting, be ready. So how do we prepare ourselves properly for the end of all things or for the day of the Lord? How should we be ready for this? Simply, By doing the things he's commanded us to do while we wait. Peter helps us understand what that is, what some of those things are. You can see those in verse seven through 10. Let me just scoot through them quickly. Verse seven, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Then he says in verse seven, be vigilant in prayer. Verse eight, keep loving one another genuinely, earnestly. Verse nine, show hospitality without grumbling verse 10 serve one another with the gifts that God has given so we've we've kind of already covered the ground of what being sober minded is you can look back in first peter chapter 1 verse 13 peter uses another kind of fun phrase when he says gird up the loins of your minds you guys remember what that was talking about it's talking about a soldier preparing for battle girding up his his tunic maybe even tucking it into his belt why would he do that so that he can move and run and be agile and ready for battle. So Peter is using that message to convey to us this idea, be ready, be prepared. He's already, in chapter 3, already challenged believers, always be ready to defend the reason for the hope that is within you, right? Do you see a theme that Peter is getting at here? We don't operate in the flesh anymore, He says, you've wasted enough time with that sort of life. We don't operate in that time anymore. Instead, arm yourselves, what do we look at in the first verse of chapter 4? With what? The mind of Christ. Take up the mind of Christ. So, as Christians wait, we're supposed to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And what does Peter say? What's the reason for that? For the sake of your prayers. Did you realize that the way, your way of thinking and your conduct affect your prayers? That's what Peter says here in verse seven. I think it does make sense though. Just think through that with me logically. If if you think this I kind of prayed this way before we started, if if, if I think that I can fix my problems by myself, I'm not gonna pray. Because I can do it myself. If I, if I can overcome sin by myself, I'm not going to be driven to prayer. I'm not going to go to the Lord. If I'm tossed back and forth by everything that I hear on the radio and the TV and on social media, of course I'm not going to be praying like I should. We would all do really well to spend 15 to 30 minutes each day less listening to people in our Facebook and Twitter feeds, and spend it focusing on the mind of Christ and his word instead. And those are just random numbers. We'd probably do better to spend an hour less on social media sites and in the word of God. But it's obvious for Peter, at least, there's a direct relationship between self-control and prayer. I just want to point that out. There's a a direct relationship between self-control and prayer. And likewise, there's a direct relationship between being sober-minded and prayer. I think this is Peter's concept, and and it's really simple, so hear me out on this. The more you pray, the more self-controlled and sober-minded you will be. And the more self-controlled and sober-minded you are, the more you're going to pray. That's not difficult to comprehend, right? But I think the inverse is also true. The less you pray, the less self-controlled and sober-minded you're going to be. And the less self-controlled and sober-minded you are, the less you're going to want to pray. Do you see the the correlation that Peter puts on self being self-controlled in prayer? It starts with prayer. So Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, so pray. So pray. Be self-controlled and pray. Be watchful in prayer. Be vigilant in prayer. Work hard in prayer. Prayer looks like believers gathering together to spend time to pray for specific things, much like the group does on Sunday nights when they meet, starting tonight, 6, 6 o'clock. It looks like maybe turning off the radio in your car and praying as you drive. It it might look like gathering the family together to pray together for specific needs or for a specific purpose, more than just before a meal. Prayer can look like a lot of things, but it doesn't look like anything if it never happens. So, church, let me just echo the words of Peter in this challenge To you and to me this morning, it's just this. Be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The more self-controlled you are, the more you will pray. And the more that you spend time in prayer, the more self-controlled you will be. Look at verse 8. Since this is all true, since the the coming of the Lord, the end of all things is at hand, verse 8 says to keep loving one another earnestly. So in light of Christ's imminent return that day, love. Because what does love do? It covers. It covers a multitude of sin. Now before we talk about that word covering, which is, I think is important, I, I just want to kind of think back to Peter again. Okay, Peter's the author here. I think uh, we'd be wrong if we forgot Peter's interactions with uh, people... The day of Christ's death and his interactions with Jesus himself after he had risen. Remember how we could have described Peter at one point in his life. Unlearned fisherman. Maybe smelly, that's debatable, but certainly unlearned, brash, impulsive, at one point, very disloyal to the Lord. Right? Denied him three times. But that's not how we would describe Peter now. Simply because of Jesus' reconciling power. We see this situation play out between Peter and Jesus in John chapter 21. You guys have probably heard this before, but Jesus, this was the third time that he had appeared to the apostles, specifically to to Peter as well there after his resurrection. Uh, Peter and a lot of the other guys were out in a boat fishing, and they saw Jesus on shore, and Peter wouldn't even wait for the boat to go in, he just jumped off the boat. took off his coat and jumped in and swam to shore to be with Jesus. And Jesus has this conversation with Peter. And three times he asked Peter, do you love me? Three times. There's significance to that number here. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. So three times he is reconciling Peter back to himself. And so Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And what was Peter's response each time? He says, you know that I love you. Jesus responds, he says, okay then, Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So as Peter is writing these words to Christians in the church, I can't help but think about those words rolling around in his mind. Feed my sheep. So how does, how does Peter feed the Lord's sheep? by putting a high priority on the teachings of Jesus that he witnessed and heard and wrote down firsthand by putting a high priority on the teachings of Jesus and by emphasizing love in the church, the way that Jesus did love for the brethren. Peter was there when Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 35 said, "By this all will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another, these things I think are going through Peter's mind. And so it's obvious that a, a Christian's love for God is their first priority. Love for God, He's, Jesus said, love, your, love, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength." But it doesn't just stop there. A Christian can't say they love God and then not love others, right? We're called to love those whom Jesus loves. And so the second half of that verse says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength." And the second part is like it: love your neighbor. As yourself. John in 1 John says, you can't say you love God and hate your brother. Incompatible. You're a liar. If you hate this person, if you treat them poorly, you do not truly love God the way that you're claiming. Now, back to this idea of covering. So this is actually a quote from Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12. That verse says, hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all offenses. The idea of covering here would have been familiar to the apostles, probably to the early century Christians here, um, because it, it threw their minds back to the sacrificial system. The Old Covenant in the Old Testament, a high priest would take the blood of an animal on the Day of Atonement, and he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, effectively covering the sins of the people that was the idea of the blood on the mercy seat it covered the sins of of the people and this concept is used throughout scripture it's especially important in the book of hebrews and it's important to every believer every person who's put their faith in god because the blood of jesus now covers your sin he is the last final sufficient sacrifice and so if his blood has covered you Your debt is paid. That's an important concept for every believer. So don't pass over this idea of love covering a multitude of sins because the blood of Christ covers your multitude of sins. Peter says that our love for one another does a similar thing in the church with brothers and sisters. R.C. Sproul says, when we think of what God has covered for us, can we not cover for our brothers and sisters? In the Lord. This kind of love doesn't seek to expose our neighbor for every petty weakness. But to cover him or her from the attacks of the world. There's a lot of pettiness in the world today. Where people nitpick. Um, they grumble against things in one another. They're overly critical of one another. I read another commentator this week that said. Let the world be petty, but let it not be said of Christians. It's not how we are to behave. The end of all things is a hand, love. And he adds to love in verse 9, he adds hospitality. Now remember, for much of their history, the Jewish people were nomadic in a sense that they, they just kind of moved around. They stay one place for a little while and then they would move. The Old Testament law laid out instructions for how they were to care for other people who were passing through, for travelers, sojourners, that sort of thing. And the Israelites should have been sensitive to this need because that was what identified their people for so long. Peter adds a little clause here to help us specify the attitude in which we're supposed to show hospitality. What does he say? He says to do it without grumbling. This is still God's purpose for his people today, to show hospitality without grumbling. Peter calls Christians to open their homes, to open whatever they have for those who are in need. Because when we do that, when we open our home, when we open whatever we have to those who are in need, we are showing that we have an understanding of how God has lovingly cared for us. God has welcomed us in to his family. Look at verse 10 and 11. These, I think, are connected in that Peter ties together the church body and how we respond in love and are hospitable to one another and the glory of God. He says that every believer has been given, some versions say the gift, other versions say a gift. Uh, It it, it could mean both and or. Uh, Every Christian has been given the gift of salvation, the greatest gift you could receive. But every Christian has also been given a gift, to some degree, in the body, for the Lord, by the Spirit. Before Peter even mentions any of these gifts, though, he explains how to use them properly in verse 10. What does he say? Use them to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we talk about stewardship Sometimes and most of the time when we talk about it, we talk about it in a financial sense and and that's good We should we are to steward everything that God gives us, but I don't know that Peter has in mind Financial stewardship here Doesn't talk about anything financial anything worldly. What is he talking about? He's talking about the grace of God and the gifts of God And we're supposed to be good stewards of it for what purpose? Serve one another, the edification of the church. If you have freely received grace, Peter says, freely give it to others, especially those in the body of Christ. Now, Peter only lists really a couple of things here in this list. It's not exhaustive, even much like uh, Paul's lists in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Those aren't exhaustive either. Not, those aren't necessarily every single gift that God might give. They're just representative of the gifts of God. So Peter, in our text today, says, if you're going to speak, how should you do it? Well, be sure to speak the oracles of God, the words of God. If you're going to serve, if you're going to minister, how should you do it? Peter says, be sure to serve by the strength that God gives. The temptation, it seems to me at least, is that some people are are, are going to be tempted to, to teach and to serve in their own strength. But what does Peter say in the rest of verse 11? He says it's not about you. It's not even about the gift that God has given you. It's about God. It's about Him. Now, as, as a pastor, I can be trained in the latest ways of motivational speaking. Some of you might like that better. I don't know. I could be trained to really motivate you guys. As a church, we can make it our singular aim to get the largest crowd possible through the doors. We could do that, and it might be effective to some degree. But there seems to be a fine line these days, I think, between ministry and manipulation. And we don't want to be guilty of leaning towards manipulation. Neither I nor you as Christians are called to tickle people's itching ears with only what they want to hear, we're called to speak the truth in love. We're called to speak the words of God, the oracles of God, Peter says. Not your words, God's words. We're called to serve and minister in the strength that comes from God. Because here's the danger. If, if I'm speaking to you my own words, or you're serving someone else in your own strength, and if results from that is even the slightest bit of success. What's our temptation? Look at me. I've done it. I've motivated the church to go do what I wanted them to do. I've served this person because I am such a good person. That's the danger. And I think Peter's addressing that a little bit here. We get the glory. If we serve in our own strength, if we teach our own words it's about us. But Peter says that's not how it's supposed to be. Look at, look at verse 11. He said, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Period. Amen. Now it's true. Every talent, every gift, every ability that you have is from God. And so you see, wonderful athletes giving glory to God for their athletic ability. They're right to do that. 100% came from God. But it's also true that Christians specifically are to are called by God to exercise and steward God's gift, not for your own agenda, not for your own praise, but for his glory alone, for his glory. So they're right to give the glory to God, but too often they still make it about them. There are some that don't. Praise the Lord for them. Maybe you notice this, but in verse 11, there's, I don't know if Peter could sing. For just some reason in my mind, he seems like a guy who couldn't sing very well. But I think this is a song. Maybe I'll get to heaven one day and he will blow me away. That'd be so cool. But I think he writes a song here. It's its what we would call a doxology, which is a writing or a song specifically that just ascribes praise and honor to God alone. It's... It's much like the doxology that we often sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now here's why this is important. Here's why Peter's uh, phrasing of that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Here's why this is important. Because you are not necessary to the existence of all things, because I am not necessary to the existence of all things. Now, I don't mean to insult you or diminish you at all. It's just simply a matter of fact. You did not create yourself, did you? You did not create your parents. You did not create North America. You did not create the continents. You did not create world. You did not create anything. Now you might have had something to do with children. If you have kids, you sort of were there when that happened. Well, maybe more than sort (laughs) of, but you're still dependent on somebody else. You didn't make it all happen. Everything about the universe in which we live is the result of, of one of two things. Okay. Stick with me here. Number 1, it's the result of some form of self-creation where nothing somehow turned into something, and everything we see was created ran- randomly from that nothing turned to something. That's option 1, that's evolution. Or the universe in which we live is the result of the creation by something or someone who is self-existent, who is there. Now, the logical train of thought is clear. We've already said none of us is self-existent. People that push that viewpoint of, of evolution, no matter how hard they try, they did not create themselves. They came from something. And if you trace that something, it's got to lead back to something else and something. It can't lead back to nothing. Or you are nothing, and you are obviously something. But we are not The creator of all things. We came from something and other somethings are not dependent on us for existence. Paul in Colossians verse, chapter one, verse 15 through 20 says that Christ is above all things and in all things and before all things. It says in him all things hold together. He is not dependent on any outside force to exist, but you are and I am. So who is rightfully King mankind who doesn't create themselves or God in Jesus Christ who has been around from the beginning and holds all things together. Still, this is not a difficult, logical argument to wrap your head around guys. It really isn't at its core. And yet so many people would just love for us to think otherwise I've been leaning on R.C. Sproul a lot because he has a lot to do with defending the faith, with apologetics. I just want to read something to you that he wrote about this because I found it extremely helpful. He says, God is before all things and above all things. In his being, he is perfect. Nothing is lacking. He's filled with countless multitude of excellencies. That's why the angels in heaven never tire of singing doxology to him. That's why the people of God should never be bored in bringing him the sacrifice of prayer and praise. He is a singular greatness that transcends all lesser things, even those things that impress us so deeply about the world. So you stand over the Grand Canyon, that's impressive. You stand in front of the Rocky Mountains, that's impressive. But who made those things? Who made that hole in the ground and that big hill? God. You didn't make it. I didn't make it. God did. Sproul goes on to say, The reason why God is glorious is that he is the only being who has the power of being in himself. The marvelous transcendence of God, who alone is dependent on nothing, has not derived his being from something before him or outside of him. He is not subject to any possibility of decay, degeneration, or death. In him all things live and move and have their being, Acts 17 says. That's glorious and transcendent. That describes a being who is so far above anything finite, anything created, that to worship a tree or any aspect of the created order is nonsense and idolatry by way of contrast. This is why Peter emphasizes that any gift that a Christian has has to be used in the strength of God for the glory of God. Because it's not about you. And it's not about me. And it's not about the gift. And if we use our gifts to point at me, we are using it wrong and God is not pleased. But God is pleased when we love and cover a multitude of sins. God is pleased when we show hospi- hospitality without grumbling. God is pleased when we direct all the glory and use the gifts that he's given to glorify God. Because all glory belongs to God. That's what Peter says at the end of verse 11. All glory belongs to God. Dominion belongs to God. Not just for a moment. Not just for your lifetime. Forever. Forever. Before you, after you, dominion belongs to God. So, if the end of all things is at hand, it should motivate us to these things, to be more self-controlled. Do you struggle with that? Pray. That's the next thing. If the end of all things is at hand, be self-controlled, but also pray. Pray more. Pray more than you think you need to. And then pray some more. It should also motivate us toward deeper and deeper love for those in the church, for those in the body of Christ, which is then evidenced how we use our gifts to serve one another. If the end of all things is at hand, it should also serve as a reminder to us that God was here before us, and it's him who holds all things together, not us. This is why Jesus, New Testament authors over and over tell us, don't be anxious about anything. Cause it doesn't matter if you're anxious or not, you don't control it. God does. To Him be glory and dominion forever. And so we're talking about being prepared, being ready. Remember the slapjack game? You have to be ready, be watching. Christian, as you're watching, you don't know the time. I can't tell you the time of Jesus' return either. I won't claim to. But I will claim To know and to be able to encourage you in what to do while we wait. This is it. This at least is a start. Be self-controlled. Go to prayer. Love more. And remember that everything here, including your existence, does not depend on you, but it depends on God. To Him alone be glory and dominion forever and ever. Pray with me. Lord, this is a needed reminder. Because we do struggle. Uh, We do struggle thinking that we have to hold it together. I have to hold this together. My family's things are falling apart. I have to be the glue that holds it together. When in reality, that is too tall a task for any one of us. But it's not for you. You hold the universe together. Surely you can hold me together. Surely you can hold my family, this church, our community, this nation, your world. You can do it. We believe that you are good and powerful. Dominion is yours. Glory is yours forever. And so, Lord, as we wait for the end of all things, we know what we're supposed to do. These things, to be self-controlled, to pray, to show love for the brethren, to use our gifts to serve one another, to be hospitable one to another without grumbling and to remember that you are above all. And so, Lord, maybe there there's some listening that they're hearing this and saying, wow, I I didn't realize how dependent I was on the Lord. Maybe they're recognizing that they actually just need a relationship with the Lord. God, I pray that your spirit would move in their heart. Remove the blinders. Take the scales off of their eyes. Lift the veil from their heart so that they might see, that they might believe that Jesus paid their sin debt. His blood covers even their sin in belief. And so, Lord, I pray that you might continue to save people today by listening and believing your word. Thank you for it and for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.